So I don't know about uh, you, but growing up I had a home that was filled with some conflict. So I want to tell you a little bit uh, about the home that I grew up in. Uh, There was five boys and there was one girl. And I'll tell you, that girl is tough. Uh, We were not surprised um, in high school uh, when she started doing, messing around with some martial arts types of things um, because we got to experience that a little uh, growing up. Uh, I called her sissy. Uh, You do not get to call her that. You do not get to make fun of me for calling her that. That's just sort of how uh, that went in our house. But one of the reoccurring conflicts that we had in our house is anytime we were going to go somewhere, right? There's six of us. So six children, two parents, some animals. And so we didn't have a minivan. We had a 15 passenger van. All right. And so, and, oh, and it had a CD player in it too, which that was amazing. So we got to listen to some uh, Adventures in Odyssey CDs. If you know about Adventures in Odyssey, then you can do that. If you don't Google it, it's fine. But we would go somewhere and we had this reoccurring conflict, this fight on who got to sit shotgun, like who got to sit in the front seat. And we had primary rules for this. We had secondary rules for this. We had tertiary rules for this. So one of the things, you came out of the, the house. Everybody had to be out there. You had to see the car before you yelled shotgun, right? And sometimes my mom would get so frustrated with this continual fight over who was going to sit where that she said, you know what? nobody's going to sit shotgun. Charlie is. Charlie was our blind Yorkshire Terrier dog. (laughs) So sometimes we all missed out and stinking Charlie got shotgun. But you know, there, there just like came a time when sitting shotgun just wasn't good enough for us anymore. Like, it was cool to sit in the front in that way. You didn't want to sit in the back, especially in a 15-passenger. You got, like, this a lot. But we wanted to sit in the driver's seat. This is one of my favorite pictures that I have of my boys. Like, there's something about a steering wheel. Like, there's just, like, a way this feels. Like, it feels good. You feel free. You feel powerful. You feel strong. Like you feel in control. I'll never forget the moment that I drove my own car for the first time. That beautiful 1979 Chrysler Newport that was sparkly brown. Like it just feels good. Uh, there's something about it. You know, even uh, thank you for, to Hy-Vee for when you go grocery shopping, you don't just have a normal cart. They have carts that look like race cars, and praise the Lord that there's two steering wheels. So it's just amazing. But I think we can identify with this. I think we can identify with the feeling of wanting power and wanting control. And I think for most of us, like, we're, we're happy to go somewhere if we have some control over where that somewhere is and what that somewhere looks like. You know, like, if you get to drive, Or if you get to choose the music. Or if you get to choose the temperature. Because some people get in the car and it's like never hot enough. No matter, you're just like cranking that thing up to like high. Till the heater starts crying at you and you still want to have it. But others of you don't like it that way. You like it a different kind of way. 
And sometimes for us, if, if, if the conditions aren't what we would prefer, if the conditions of where we're traveling aren't what we would like, then we're not okay with the destination anymore. So sometimes it's maybe not so much about where we're going, but about how we are going. It, it turns out that when you're traveling somewhere, there's a lot of comfort behind the steering wheel. But there's a lot of discomfort around the car seat. Now we find out that the car seat is actually a difficult place to be because we want to use the voice that God has given us to help direct where we might go next or what might happen after this or that or the other thing. But something that we learn in the story of God is that like, we're not driving. He is. We are not king. He is. It is not our kingdom. It's his. And part of what we have to learn, part of what this book is about, it's about life in the car seat. It's about life when you do not have control. When you do not have power. And will we trust the king whose kingdom it is to bring about the, the purposes that he is bringing about? Because that is going to happen. My five-year-old can request where we go next, but I'm driving. My eight-year-old can let me know how he feels about where we're currently going and how we're traveling and what music is coming through the speakers, but I'm driving. And I have to tell you, part of what the Lord has done with me in this year, since I've stood up here on March 8th, I did not stand up here for a long time after March 8th. And part of what I believe the Lord was teaching me, I'm not telling you this is what he was teaching you, I'm telling you what he was teaching me, is that man Dave does not like the car seat. He likes the steering wheel. And I don't know if there's anybody in the house who's like me in that, but I need this book. Like I need this name to help me because the reality of it is I'm just going to spend a lot of miles in the car seat. And when I think I'm king, when I think it's my kingdom, when I think I should be able to direct where it goes and how it should be, like I lose who God has made me to be. And in this series, we've really been coming around this idea, like who is your king? And what kingdom do you live in? Because it turns out there's lots of kings in the world. Turns out there's lots of things we can worship, lots of things we can bow down to, lots of things we can serve. And there's lots of kingdoms. There's lots of kingdoms that we can belong to. And we're called to belong to him. So in John chapter 18, Jesus has this conversation with this guy, Pilate. You know, Pilate's this powerful person. Or he thinks he is. But he's been given a position. Like, he's a guy, he's got a, a nameplate on the door. He's on the website. Like, he's powerful. And he's having this conversation with Jesus. And he just turns to Jesus at the end of his life. And he asks him just a simple question. 
And it's just like, hey, Jesus, like, are you, are you the king? And what Jesus is magnificent at, what Jesus is brilliant at, is he's turning the question around. Because the question that Pilate was asking is like sizing him up. Like, are you a king? I've heard that you're a king. And Jesus says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. Huh. I'm not sure that's what Pilate was expecting in that moment. Like maybe a yes or a no. I am a king or I'm not. My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to what? To prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. And what this series is about is about us wrestling with that question, like would we agree with Jesus that the kingdom that we belong to is from another place? It's not of this world. And I will tell you, most of what is in front of us all of the time is an encouragement to make this your kingdom. Make what you see your kingdom. Make the people in our world who seem to have power and authority and like make them king. But we need to remember these words of Jesus. My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to present, prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. So who's your king? And what kingdom are you a part of? It might sound as we've had some of these conversations about King Saul and about King David and as we step into having some conversations about King Solomon, I'm trying to say something about our 45th president or our 46th president. There are some people on the internet who would tell you that's what I'm trying to do. I can show you the emails. <laughs> what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get this book into the minds of people. Because the king that we serve is from another place. And the kingdom that we belong to is not this kingdom. It's not the kingdom of the world. But it's a kingdom that comes from above. So much so in the third chapter of John. There's this man that comes to Jesus. This man who thinks that he's got it all and he understands how it all works. And he says, Jesus, how do I be born again? How do I have a life in the kingdom? And Jesus is going to say, it's not going to happen through earthly means, but it's going to happen through spiritual means. And so you have to be born again to have life in my name. It's a kingdom from above. And so church, we just need to make sure that we're people who have an identity that comes from above, a life that comes from above, a power and a strength and a perspective that comes from above because there's always going to be crazy stuff going on here. It's always going to be that way. Hope you're encouraged. But we can have strength and power and hope because of who reigns above all of this. And the person who reigns above all of this impacts everything that happens here. But what happens to us is that we get wrapped up 
and the kings and the kingdoms of this world. So we need to talk a little bit about King David. So a life of King David, I know some of you in the back are like, wow, thank you for making something that I cannot see. Awesome. So let me tell you. So born to Jesse of the tribe of Judah, youngest of eight sons, and then he's anointed by King Samuel. He kills Goliath, the Philistine, and he's made the personal musician for Saul. So if you want to know how much power you have, do you have a personal musician? If you have a personal musician, you have a lot of power. If you don't, and Alexa is not a personal musician, all right? Uh, 30 years old, he's made king of Judah. And then at age 37, he's made king of Israel as well. So for a while, there's that period where he's just ruling one kingdom. And then some years later, age 37, he rules them all. Uh, and then here, he makes plans to build a new temple. It's like, okay, God, this current temple we have is not good enough. It's not beautiful enough. I want to build you a new one. And God makes some promises to him that a son of his will always sit on the throne of Israel. That's what we refer to as the Davidic promise. Uh, and then 995 BC-ish, he marries Bathsheba after killing her husband Uriah. And at the end of his life, appoints his son Solomon king of king after Adonijah tries to take the throne. So one of his other sons is like, no, I think I would like shotgun. I will take that. And David anoints Solomon king. And then David dies after reigning in Israel for 40 years. And I know last week David was in the pasture and we're like going to speed fast forward all the way to the end of David's life. Second Samuel chapter 22, just two verses today. I'm getting in this deal where I'm not only talking about a couple of verses. I don't know what's going on with me and something's happening. So 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 31 to 32. These are some words of David. He writes, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who would take refuge in him. And then verse 32, For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? So verse 31, I love this. There's this declaration that David has that he speaks over all of the people. If you're thinking to yourself, this sounds like Psalm 18. You're right. It is Psalm 18 where he says this great declaration, as for God, his way is perfect. It's this Hebrew word, tamim. It's perfect. Like it's, it's the moment, you ever been cutting something and you're like, that one's going in the trash, but this one, I did it perfectly. Or you're, or you're working with wood, you're making some kind of cut for like a new banister or something. People who are good at that kind of stuff, not me, I call somebody. But just imagine a person in the world who is good at that. And you just make the perfect cut. Or you're making some kind of food, some kind of lasagna, and it's not burned. It comes out, it's like, oh my gosh, I want everybody to see this. So like Instagram, everybody needs to see it. Like some kind of moment when you're by yourself and it's perfect. It's tamim. Like we don't need to add anything to it. It's not lacking anything. There's a, there's a beauty to it. His way is perfect. And the word of the Lord, he says, is flawless. 
Usually when we think of flawless, we think of like physical beauty. Uh, I will tell you, I did learn this week in my sermon research um, that Halle Berry does have a makeup line called Flawless. So for whatever that's worth, if there's anybody in the house who's thinking about changing things up, it's like flawless.com or something. I don't know. That's just, that's, that's there for you. People are like, get out of here. Okay, so it's flawless. His word is flawless. It's, it's, it's beautiful. There's life in it. His way is not convenient, though. <laughs> David doesn't say that. The way of the Lord is convenient. So this is not being able to order groceries on your phone and then sending someone to go get them and then the trunk is opened and these magical high V people come out and they put the groceries in your car and then you get to drive away. That's not been David's experience. That it's going to work out on your terms when you would like it. No, he says that it's perfect and flawless, but it's not convenient. It's also not common. Like his way is not common. Not everybody is going to be doing it. And it's also not comfortable. Can I just tell you that the way of Jesus, the way of God, is always going to feel like a jacket that just got too tight? Or it's two or three sizes too big? Like it's your experience is not going to be on your life, in your life on earth, is like, God, oh, this is like very comfortable. It's always going to be tight. Or it's always going to be too big. But his way is refining. Like there's something in here that needs to be cleansed, that needs to be healed, that needs to be redeemed. When I was a kid in youth group, we'd just sing this song around the fire called Refiner's Fire. And whenever I hear like that word refining, I always think of that. It's like written in the 80s. Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire. I'll stop. But that's, that, that we sang that as a way, as a hilarious, a bunch of teenagers. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not cooperating very well with what is being sung right here. But there's a refining work that the Spirit wants to do. But it stretches us. His way is stretching, but his way is where life is found. So it's not convenient, it's not common, it's not comfortable. But it's refining, it's stretching, and it's where life is found. I mean, David can say that, hey, I've spent my whole life like being the youngest. Like we talked about this last week, Hakaton, the youngest the runt, the baby, the pinky finger. And I've spent years of my life running away from my father-in-law. You know, David marries Michael as his wife, and King Saul chases him for years. And so 1 Samuel chapter 22, David ends up in this cave hiding from Saul. And it's dark, and it's wet, and it's not comfortable. So before he is king of anything. He's king of the caves. 
If you're ever going to have authority, you're going to be king over anything. You, you, you can't wait for it all to be perfect and good and make sense. First, he's king of the caves. And these, these men come around him in that time and in that season. And these are men that stick with David in the hard stuff and when David is at the heights. David can say, I, I fought against enemy nations to protect God's people. So Philist, Philistines, I fought them. Ammonites, fought them. Amalekites, add them to the list. Edomites, I fought them too. Moabites, yep. We're not talking about like individuals that you have a hard time with. Like a person in your family that you're having conflict with, someone at your workplace you're having conflict with, something on the inter- someone on the internet you're having conflict with. No, we're talking about nations who were enemies of David. David's life is, I think, in many ways a life of conflict. And David would say, I've battled my own sin, too. And I thought fighting against the Philistines was tough. Turns out, battling against my own sin was just as hard. In some ways, that was the true Goliath. Because there was a wife that I took that was not mine. And there was a life that I took that was not mine to take. And David can also say at the end of his life is that he's had to bury sons of his. Like, oh, the the darkness that is in that. The pain that is in that. But here's the verdict at the end. This is why this is so beautiful and powerful. Here's what he can say at the end of all of that, given all of that experience. He can say that his way is perfect. And that his word is flawless. And he is a shield. For all who would take refuge in him. And I just think David knows that you need a shield in a world full of arrows. Like you're just going to need a shield. I brought a shield today. And it talks, which is cool. I'm not going to do it because I'll get distracted by all the things that it says. But like you need a shield, David says. Like, like something, somewhere for the arrows to go so they don't pierce you. This is a real arrow. I am not going to demonstrate anything. I already cut myself earlier this week putting these tips on, which shows you I'm not really a hunter person. All right, so. But we live in a world filled with arrows. I think of Ephesians chapter 6 when Paul is writing to this New Testament church, this community of Jesus followers, and he says, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Not just like regular arrows. We're talking about flaming arrows and when I hear flaming arrows it makes me think of this. Kevin Costner and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves movie I couldn't watch. 1991. Like flaming arrows. An arrow that's more going to do more than just cause pain. An arrow that's going to destroy. And so my question for the house today is what arrows have been flung toward you in recent days? What arrows of the enemy 
have been flung towards you in recent days. I think for some of us, like the arrow of hopelessness, like it's always going to be this way. It's always going to feel like it feels today. It's never going to change. That is an arrow of the evil one. He desires to fling towards you. The, the arrow of accusation. Like something that you did, a choice that you made. And the evil one loves to bring it up. Again and again and again. Oh yeah, remember? Remember? Remember that two weeks ago? Remember that last month? Remember that this morning? You're sitting in church now, but boy, I sure would like to think the church people would like to get a vision of you this morning and how you acted. That's the arrow of accusation. The arrow of hatred. I think one of the ways that the enemy desires to, to work against the people of God is to, to divide the people of God. And what better way to divide people than to instill hatred in their heart? So instead of being willing to stand next to someone, now you stand opposed to them. It's one thing to sit close on the couch. It's another thing to sit at a coffee table with your arms folded. And I think if Satan can get the church to do that, he's got a foothold. He's got power. He's got authority. And we are foolish if we don't believe that is part of what is unfolding in our time. But then verse 32, David moves on from a declaration, and now he's got a question. Verse 32, who is God beside the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? Like, who's God besides the Lord? In one line, you have two Hebrew names for God. Like, who is God? Who is Elohim? Elohim is, is the Name for God that's used at the beginning of creation. So in the beginning, Elohim. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It happens to be a, a plural form of God. We can't get into all of the stuff today. But it just shows his power and his might and his rule in the world. Like who's Elohim besides the Lord? Yahweh. Like this, this God who is a promise keeper. With a mighty hand outstretched arm brings Israel out of Egypt. So who is Elohim, creator God, besides Yahweh, this covenant God? Like you can look, but you're just not going to find another God like this. And I just wonder, like, have you ever been sitting in the passenger seat, convinced fully that the person driving the car has no idea where they're going? And of course we have. Of course we've all found ourselves in that place, driven, being driven around by someone who has no idea where this story is going. That is what happens when we bow down to false kings and false kingdoms. We just allow ourselves to be driven around everywhere and anywhere that the person driving will take us. And so we end up to, into all kinds of harmful, dark, and crazy places when we don't know who our king is and we don't know the kingdom that we belong to. And that's why I believe this series of conversations are important because the Bible, this book, is, it's not going to take you where you want to go. 
And it's not going to give you what you want. But the Bible is going to call you into what God has prepared for you. It's going to call you toward the kingdom. So like when you read the, the Genesis account in Exodus, what God does with God's people, and when you read the Psalms, and when you read Matthew, and you read Mark, and Luke, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and when you read Revelation, and Hebrews, and this one-page book, Philemon, when you read all of this stuff, what's happening? Like the Spirit's calling you towards the kingdom. It's not calling you to build your own or seek your own, but it's calling you home calling you towards the kingdom. And of course it's uncomfortable. Of course it's not common. Of course it's not convenient. Of course it's refining and stretching, but it's where life is. It's calling us toward his kingdom. I love Dallas Willard. As I have proved to you over and over again. But here's what he says. That the gospel is less about how to get into the kingdom of heaven after you die. And it's more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. The gospel is less about how to get into the kingdom of heaven after you die and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. We're being called towards the kingdom. And so in the last hours of the life of Jesus. He's gathered in the upper room with his disciples. And it's the end. The disciples are convinced of it. Jesus has told them that's the end. It should not be a surprise to the disciples. They've had this conversation. Jesus has said multiple times in the gospel accounts, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem And it's not going to be a party. I'm going to give my life. And I'm giving my life so that there can be resurrection. Because without a death, there is no resurrection. And so they sing of him and they share this meal. They go back to Egypt in their minds and through their senses. And he takes bread and he breaks it. And he said, this is my body. That's given for you and he takes the wine that was there and he pours the cup out and says this is the, the blood of the new covenant. There's a new thing happening. And then Paul picks up this language later in the New Testament. And he says, hey, anytime you go back to the table, you go back to the upper room, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. You're proclaiming the kingdom. You're reminding everybody around you like, hey, let's, let's run towards the kingdom. Let's not just be driven around by anybody who's willing to drive us. My mom gave me a speech about that when I turned 16 and all my buddies started driving. Be careful who you let drive around. I think she was talking, I was thinking about it, the actual car. I think she had a different message. But I just think it's good advice for us. And what's true of us is we find ourselves in that space. And Jesus is telling his disciples, he's looking his disciples in the eye, in the face. And he's saying to them, I'm not going to the cross so that you can get into the kingdom of heaven. 
You can have some kind of token, some kind of card, some kind of insurance policy. No, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to defend sin and death and hell forever and ever. Why? So that you can learn how to live in the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is not just a place. The kingdom church, it's a power. Jesus will talk about it like a yeast that works through all of the dough. So there's not any of the dough that doesn't get any of the yeast. It works its way through all of it. And I know that in 2020, there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of division. There was a lot of hopelessness. But the truth of this word is the point is not to just get rid of all of this and fly to heaven someday and thanks be to God we're going to get into the kingdom. No, thanks be to God that he gives us the power to live in the kingdom here and to offer it and to bring it in all of the places that we've been called. And so at the end of David's life, he can say, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him, who is God besides the Lord, and who is the rock except our God. So we, in the kingdom of heaven, we listen to the voice of the king because his word is flawless. And in the kingdom of heaven, we follow the way of the king because his way is perfect. And in the kingdom of heaven, we stand behind the shield of the king. Because in a world full of arrows, he is our refuge. So two questions, who's your king? And where's your kingdom? And I want this to be a place where we stand with Jesus and we say, I don't know, like, kingdom's not of this world but it is changing, it is transforming, it is redeeming, it is resurrecting this world by the grace and the power of our risen Jesus who defeated sin and death and hell with three words, it is finished. We pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you today for the, the power and the grace that we find in your word and in your way. God, thank you for these people who are gathered here in this moment who are carrying all kinds of things who are their experience is that there's arrows everywhere. God, I pray that you would speak to them in these moments in a powerful way about the word you've spoken over your life and about the way that you've called them to and about the shield that you are for them in a world full of arrows. God, may you teach us to live in the kingdom of heaven as we wait for all things to be redeemed and restored and healed. And God, may you use us as you used 
John to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we be pointers to the kingdom and may we not get caught up in building or advancing some other king's agenda or some other kingdom's influence and power in this world. But we would seek you. Only you and only your kingdom. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. didn't uh, grow up around church there's a, a prayer that you hear about a lot and you, you see it a lot and you're kind of new to, to the Bible and to the way of Jesus it's in Matthew chapter 6 and the prayer just goes like this when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray this then is how you should pray our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I pray that you would go in peace serve the Lord this week. Thank you for your presence here, for the way that you engage in this community for not the good of your own kingdom, for the advancements of his. And also please stack the chairs, AI. We'll see you next week.